Good morning. Good to see everyone here this morning. We're going to start talking about a, a delicate subject this morning. It's soap. <laughs> soap is an everyday experience for at least most of us, I hope. Soap has been around for, in its various forms for centuries. In fact, the earliest evidence of soap production dates back to around 2800 B.C. when it was mentioned in a Mesopotamian clay tablet. A formula for soap consisting of water, alkali, and cassia oil was written on a Babylonian clay tablet somewhere around 2200 B.C. Soap's even mentioned three times in the Old Testament. Job chapter 9 verse 30, Jeremiah 2 verse 22, Malachi 3 and verse 2. So soap, for a very long time, has been, a very, has been very important to our human existence. And for good reason, right? We need soap. William Osler, one of the founding professors of John Hopkins Hospital, sometimes called the father of modern medicine, says that soap, water, and common sense are the best disinfectants. But in these days, we might ask, what soap do I use? And we're not necessarily talking about what type of soap do we use as far as liquid or, or bar soap? But when it, when it comes to washing our hands and our bodies, we're faced with a lot of different choices when it comes to soap. Did you know that there's a chocolate-flavored soap? Not one you necessarily want to eat, but you're going to smell like chocolate. There's a touch-friendly soap that gives you a pleasant uh, sensory experience by means of texture in the soap when you use it. There is a 24 karat gold soap. And yes, it is formulated with small particles of 24 karat gold, and it's used to promote suppleness and soft skin. So if you really want soft skin, you're going to have to dish out some bucks, and it's going to cost you a little bit. Then there's natural soap that emphasizes the natural ingredients through scent, through color, through shape, texture, or by using aromatherapy, all to kind of develop this sense of well-being as you're, you're being cleansed. Getting clean is what the Old Testament passage that we were read from, from Isaiah chapter 1, is all about. Through the prophet Isaiah, God tells the people of Judah that because of their sins... In Isaiah chapter 1, when you stretch out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Because your hands are full of blood. And he goes on with some instruction. He says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from your doings and before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Now there was a huge sin that Isaiah was guilty of. And that sin was of 
being religious without being righteous. Sound familiar sometimes? They were being religious without being righteous. Through Isaiah, God was telling the people that they were being very careful about observing their religious festivals and their worship of God. They were being very careful not to forget to go to church. They're like us. They were going to church. They were making sure that they took the Lord's Supper. They were making sure that they come to Sunday night. They were coming to Wednesday. They were observing all the religious festivals and the worship of God. But you know what they were also doing? They were also running corrupt court systems that chose to favor people that had good bribe money. They were also oppressing the poor and the widows and the orphans to fend for them. You know, they were making them fend for themselves. So God says, learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. And he says, this change is possible for you. Even though you've gotten so deep and so corrupt in your daily lives, change is possible. And he goes on to say, come, let's reason together. Let's argue it out. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be like snow. Even though they're red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Again, their sin here is about being religious without being righteous. And God saw this as a huge problem. Now we can say that the overall lesson of this text here is don't do the wrong thing, do the right thing. But this leaves us with a question. How come these people needed to be told this, right? Why did God's people need to be told, don't do the wrong thing, do the right thing? They had the law of Moses, right? The law of Moses tells them exactly what they need to do. They knew the covenant between God and Israel. Surely they knew that God wanted them to do, like you find in Amos chapter 5 and verse 15, that he wants them to hate evil and love good. Avoid what's wrong. Embrace what's right. Pursue righteousness. Flee wickedness. So why weren't they doing it? How come these people had all this great information, but they weren't doing what they were supposed to do? You know, we could ask ourselves the same question, couldn't we? How come we've got all this great information right here, but yet we still got to be told, don't do what's wrong, do what's right? We consistently do what's wrong sometimes. 
And when we consciously do something that's wrong, is it because we don't know any better? Not usually. Most of the time when we do something wrong, don't we know better? Yeah, we do, don't we? We know better. We know we shouldn't be doing that. But it seems like there's a spiritual duality within us that always has us within conflict. The Apostle Paul calls it the old nature and the new nature. It's kind of like those cartoons where a man's torn between what to do and he's got a little angel sitting on one shoulder and he's got a devil sitting on one shoulder and they're both telling him different things to do, right? Devil saying, come on, try it, you'll like it. Angel saying, you know better. You know better. So if you think that's too silly of an image, consider the words of Apostle Paul from Romans chapter 7. I do not understand my own actions. Anybody ever feel like that? For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Sound personal? Paul was aware of an inner conflict. A struggle in which he was pulled diametrically between two opposing forces. And then there's Faust. Faust is the magician and alchemist in German legend, if you're into literary history. He sells his soul to the devil in exchange for power and knowledge. And at one point he says of himself, says there's two souls at last are dwelling in my breast. And one is striving to forsake its brother. It's like there's two different beings within us, both trying to do different things. Now part of the problem is that often when we deliberately do the wrong thing, and then nothing bad happens to us, what happens? It becomes so much easier for us to do that thing the next time, doesn't it? Hey, I thought this was wrong, but nothing's happened. No lightning bolts, <laughs> no consequences, no penalties. Okay, well maybe I'll try it again and see what happens. Psychologists tell us that when we deliberately do wrong, we end up hurting ourselves. And we end up hurting ourselves in this way. Well, first of all, we come up with our own rules for our behavior as a way for us to understand what we're doing. Then our individual behaviors become precedent for new rules. <coughs> Once we perceive ourselves as losing self-control in some area, kind of like professional or personal honesty, we get less motivated in that area. We're less excited about doing that. Finally, we engage in a distorted informational processing in order to avoid the perception of having violated one of my own rules. In the process, we make ourselves less reliable as a guide to our own behavior. Okay, that's a lot of psychological jargon, isn't it? Translated into lay language. We make up our own rules, right? We do it all the time. <clears throat> 
then we lower our standards. Once we make up our own rules, we get to lower our standards. After that, we decide that we're flawed, and we're not even going to be able to follow our own rules, but that's okay because I'm human. Not a problem. And then we end up rationalizing or making excuses for our own behavior. The people whom Isaiah was addressing here provide a perfect example of this very process right here. They wanted to stay in God's graces. Okay, during, the, during this whole time during Isaiah, during the rise and the fall of the judges, through, you know, they still wanted at, at some level to have God on their side. They never absolutely, completely threw God out of the picture. So they still wanted to stay in his good graces, but by coming up with their own rules for their behavior, they justified mistreating other people by being pious in terms of observing their religious festivals and other ritualistic practices as far as their religion was concerned. Isaiah's message, though, is that God does not value ritual without reformation. God does not value ritual without reformation. My button's not working the way I want it to this morning. But there you go. You fill in. That's all right. It's probably me. There's your fill in the blank for your outline. God does not value ritual without reformation. This failure to love God and their neighbors can be expressed in two concepts. We're talking about right belief or right conduct. Right belief is tied very easily to rituals. The people in Isaiah's day, they never missed a holy day. They never missed a prescribed sacrifice. They were sure that their beliefs and their rituals supported or illustrated their beliefs. In our terms, went to church every Sunday. I'm here for Bible class. I'm here for worship. I pray. I sing. I take the Lord's Supper. I come back in the afternoon for another worship. I'm here for Wednesday night. All my religious practices are in line. Everything's good. But what's right conduct? Right conduct goes beyond what we believe. It's all about what we do or what we practice. Pleasing God has never been a matter of right belief alone. Now, I may step on some toes here, but that's my job, right? Just because you come to church on Sunday and you sing and you pray and you take the Lord's Supper and you come back at 1.30 and you're here for Wednesday night does not make you right with God. It doesn't. You could be here for every service, 
participate. You could even raise your hand in class, and when Dan calls on you, you got a great example, you got a great comment to make. That doesn't make you right with God. Right belief alone has never been pleasing to God. Isaiah's text here reminds us that right conduct is crucial in addition to right belief. In the New Testament, we need to only consider the Pharisees who had right belief coming out their ears, right? They knew right belief. They had all the, the rights. They did all the observances and the prescribed sacrifice and everything. But they were a little on the weak side as far as right conduct. What, Jesus, what did Jesus call those who were strong on belief but weak on conduct? They're called hypocrites. In fact, we might want to take a little detour here, and we're going to consult Matthew chapter 15. Here the Pharisees brought up this very topic of washing, didn't they? And what did they say? It says, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders because they're not washing their hands before they eat? And of all the great things that Jesus was talking about, of all the great topics and all the lessons Jesus is talking about, the Pharisees bring up, how come your guys aren't washing their hands before they eat? I could have thought of a better question, probably. How come they don't wash their hands before they eat? Jesus crushes them. He goes on and says, he, he asks them a question. Okay, he says, okay, you want to know why my disciples don't answer, wash their hands? Well, let me ask you a question. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother should surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. For the sake of your tradition, you made void the word of God. You hypocrites! How dare you ask me about the washing of hands when you are doing exactly what Isaiah was talking about. Isaiah prophesied rightly about you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrine. Boom. Mic drop for Jesus, right? You want to go ahead and talk about traditions? We'll talk about traditions. Isaiah's theology of clean brings the concept of right belief and right conduct together. Ancient rites, including animal sacrifice and all of this, symbolized ritual cleanliness. But they could not by themselves make a person clean. In the same way, us coming to church and being here at every service doesn't make you a Christian. Anything, any more than standing in a garage will make you a car. Just because you're here doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because you're here 
doesn't make you right with God. For that to happen, a person also needed to do the right things and behave honestly, behave helpfully. You know, fundamental to coming to the presence of the Lord is living a life of obedience, isn't it? Right belief is just a start. We got to put it into right conduct. We have to advocate for justice. We have to advocate for mercy and compassionate acts and the like. Yes, we need to have the right belief. Yes, we need to be at church, but it's got to go way beyond that. It's got to go into the right conduct that we exhibit every day that we're not here. It's about the life that we live. You know, some interpreters of New Testament theology reduce spiritual cleansing to come to Jesus and all is forgiven. All you got to do is come to Jesus and everything's good. You have your come to Jesus moment and you're fine. Now, yes, we do need to come to Jesus. Absolutely we need to come to Jesus. But that's not the whole gospel. That's not everything. The Bible also insists that good works must follow faith. you got to back your faith up with something. Look at James chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. James wrote, So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Someone's going to say, though, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. For us who, who are followers of Jesus, for us who are trying to be the disciples that Jesus would have us to be, doing our best to do the right thing, to do the moral thing, to do the, whatever it takes to show that we love our neighbors as ourselves, that is the soap that washes us and makes our worship of God acceptable to Him. Yes, being here on Sunday for Bible class and for worship and around the table and coming back in the afternoon and being here on Wednesday, yes, that is pleasing to God, but it's just a small part of it. It's just a start. Doing our best to do the right thing is what brings it all together. You can't just have faith. You've got to live a life of work, of compassion. Doing what is right, saying what is right, showing kindness, showing mercy. All of these are the basic ingredients of spiritual soap that make us clean. The Apostle Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians, verses 15 and 16, says that we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life.
What kind of soap are you using? And what kind of aroma are you exhibiting to those around you? Are you exhibiting the aroma of death or of life? Now, there is no reason why we Christians can't live clean and think clean and be clean in our inner selves. When we're clean in this way, and others ask us what our secret is, you know what we can say? It's all about the soap. It's all about the soap. So my question is this morning, how clean are you? How clean are you? Are you clean enough where your worship is going to be acceptable to God? Or perhaps you might find yourself like the Israelites. Remember that reading from Isaiah chapter 1? They were doing all the right things as far as worship of God was concerned. They were sacrificing. They were going to the feast and the festivals. Everything. But it all did what? It made God sick. He couldn't even look at them. He wouldn't listen to their worship. He wouldn't listen to their prayers. It made him want to throw up. Why? Because he says, your hands are covered in blood. Because while you're doing all this stuff for me, you are treating everybody around you like dirt. You're taking advantage of people. You're cheating people. You're not taking care of the widows. You're not taking care of the orphans. You're not taking care of anybody. You're sure you're going to church, but you ain't doing anything else. You can come to church and you can pray and you can sing and you can worship and at the same time God is saying I don't even want to hear it from you. Your hands are covered in blood. You make me sick. But you can clean that up with the right soap. And that's right living. Doing the right thing. Every day, that'll make you clean. Remember what Isaiah said. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Whatever your sins are today, whatever your spiritual condition today is, there is a soap that will clean you as white as snow. And that soap is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You combine that with right living and right believing from this point forward, and that blood disappears from your hands. God will hear your prayers. God will enjoy your worship. And you will be righteous in the sight of God. If you need to be washed today, to have the waters of baptism clean you. To have the blood of Jesus Christ enter your life. And the Holy Spirit come upon you. If that's what your desire is this morning. Come and see one of our elders. And let's get you clean this morning. Using the right soap. So come as we stand and sing.